strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks for being here this morning. We have got to talk about the debt ceiling because a big part of the um, concerns of what's happening with the economy that's out of the control of Wall Street and businesses, what could happen with the debt ceiling? What's happening here? I want you to hear a little bit uh, about this and what they're planning on because McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, McCarthy and the President of the United States had a meeting where they talked about this. And uh, so this is a this is an ABC News report about McCarthy and what his plan is. McCarthy says he has a big plan, and I pushed him yesterday on what that plan is and when we might get a look at it, and he's not saying. We don't know exactly what they're asking for here. While the president is adamant that he will not negotiate over the debt limit, he says any talks over the debt and deficit has to be separate. Now, both sides do agree that they don't want to see the nation default on its debt. That would be catastrophic for the economy, but right now, uh, we've got a long road ahead here. It's difficult to see the path forward. So they had a meeting. We're going to get to this in a moment. But the argument about the debt ceiling happens all the time whenever you have parties in different places. When the, in this case, it's the the Republicans that control the House and the presidency is controlled by the Democrats. When it's the other way around, we still have the same conversation and it continues to happen. How much of it is political blustering? A lot of it. Let's be honest. A lot of it is political blustering. But when you hear people talk um, about our debt and what we are doing, about our fiscal house and getting our fiscal house in order – I boil everything down as much as I can in the simplest terms so it's under, I can understand it. I cannot, um, comp- I mean, I can't sit and think about the enormity of the U.S. government, about how much trillions of dollars and all those zeros, what that actually is. But it all is the same principle. And if you think about the rules that the government enforces, the federal government is part of the enforcement of rules on business and how they operate. If you're dealing with the public, you have a set of rules that you have to live by. If people are investing in your company, if you're a publicly traded company, there are financial statements that have to be lived by. There are rules that you have to live by to protect the investments of the people that are investing in your company. And we look at a federal government and any – I don't care what political party you're in. When you look at the way our government – not Democrats, not Republicans, not independents. When you look at the way that our government is managing its finances, our finances – If it were a private company, leadership would go to prison. And we know that's true. And if it was a publicly traded company, nobody would invest in that company because there is no management of finance. They can't track billions and billions of dollars in equipment and actual dollars. They don't know where it goes. It's a mess. It is an absolute mess, and it has been for a long time. This is not partisan politics. Both parties are guilty of this. It is part of the part of it is the machine itself. There's no doubt about it. That it is um, part of when you are such a big company and when you have – and I'm I'm putting them in the same realm with a company. When you have such a large organization, there is going to be some places of mismanagement. It's just that big. But we don't see anybody doing anything with anything. Why are we not demanding a more proper audit that the American people can see of the budgets of major departments? Um Every organization that I know of, you know, not the smallest of companies where it's, uh, you know, one or two people that are controlling everything, but a company that has uh, departments and has agencies and, and, you know, you have HR and you have every company I know of that does this. They have managers over that department. 
Sometimes it's sales. Sometimes it's HR. Some, whatever it is in your company. And then they do audits. They make sure that the leadership is doing their job, that they're managing the finances and the hours of that department so it's as efficient as it possibly can be. The audits aren't to expose people as bad. The audits are there to put people in check and make sure you're following up and how can you be better at your job. I use restaurants as an example. So if you have a a favorite chain of restaurants, whatever they are, um, if you think about that one restaurant, just one that you go to, and let's go, let's go Cracker Barrel. It's a national brand that everybody knows. One Cracker Barrel restaurant, let's say, you know, how much food waste it has, averages in a week, in a month, in a year. Then you multiply that times all the stores they have in the country. That's an enormous amount of waste, which is why organizations like that do everything they can to keep waste to a minimum. You know you're never going to get zero, but waste is a big issue. Breakage, breaking plates, breaking glasses, things that have to be replaced. But a private organization that's got a bottom line to adhere to, they don't just say, you know what, we've got all this going on. We have to raise our prices to make money. Well, at some point, the public pushes back and says, we are not spending that kind of money on breakfast. And you've got to rein in spending, you have to rein in waste, and we don't see any of that. So this debt ceiling conversation should be is a viable one about what we are going to do before we raise the debt ceiling. But so much politics is involved because both parties are guilty of it. So here's the question. Was progress made in the meeting between the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States? McCarthy said it was a good meeting, calling it, uh, saying he thinks that they can find common ground. The White House said it was frank and straightforward, but both sides are still standing firm and it's not clear if any progress was really made. So the old argument and it's tired from both sides the, the in this case the President of the United States says we need to raise the debt ceiling we need to just get it done, it has to be done it's right for the American people and there shouldn't be any stipulations or conditions and we are not going to negotiate. And the Speaker of the House says, uh, Mr. President we are uh, an equal branch of the government, we have a lot of power in the House of Representatives, we have the power of the purse and you are going to negotiate because you have to because we aren't going to do anything if you don't. And now this is the chicken game they play with the debt ceiling. But this happens a lot. This happens a lot. In the end, though, will anything get done? And I, I am all for it. I don't care who the president is. I don't care who's in leadership. Getting the fiscal house in order, making sure that you are spending only what you need to spend and what you are taking from the American people is used efficiently. I talk often about nonprofits and here in town. One of the things I rave about them, um, my relationship with St. Vincent de Paul and how much I love what they do. One of the things I love about St. Vincent de Paul is efficiency. What I mean by that is everybody I know there from leadership on down, they value the money that's donated to them. They understand that it's the benevolence of a community that keeps them in business. So they squeeze every penny out of every dollar in everything they do. They are immensely efficient. And it's a respect thing. People are donating their hard-earned money. We have a huge responsibility to be efficient with it. And they are. They absolutely are. 
the people in our government, and it's both parties, they don't have that sense of responsibility with the taxpayer dollars. St. Mary's Food Bank, when you're when you, we talk about them being able to purchase seven meals for a dollar at one time, that was the number, seven meals for a dollar. And it's because they buy in bulk. But again, there's no waste. It's so efficient. They're efficient with volunteers' time. They're efficient with donators' dollars. And these are private organizations that understand they have an immense responsibility because they have they are spending other people's money. And we need leadership. We need leadership in our government that feels the same way with the responsibility of the tax dollars they take from us. That's not too much to ask. And But I, I just don't know that it's going to happen. In a moment, uh, the border shipping containers are going to be gone by this week. A conversation about our border coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks again for being here for part of your morning. Border story is still a big one here in Arizona, but it also is nationwide as we're seeing countries as far away, I'm sorry, country cities as far away as New York that are saying they're being overwhelmed by migrants. So uh, border sheriff from Cochise County, Mark Daniels, was in Washington, D.C. speaking before a House committee. I want you to hear a little bit of what Sheriff Daniels had to say about how bad it actually is at the border. I have personally experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a border county. Currently, this is the ugliest I've experienced. So he's saying still is the worst that he's ever seen. And he makes a comparison and he talks about how things were compared to how things are. To best understand my presentation is to understand we were over two years ago. My county was one of the safest border counties based on our collective government efforts, messaging, and yes, enforcement operations supported by the rule of law. What's the direct impact to my county? My citizens and law enforcement address mostly gotaways, the fight and flight syndrome in my county versus those giving up. So um, he goes on to talk more. You'll hear a little bit more. This was a, a lot of a long time of testimony and answering questions uh, there on Capitol Hill. The border shipping containers down in Yuma are being removed. Um, the container wall at the Arizona-Mexico border in Coronado National Forest is coming down in the next few days. The Arizona Department of Emergency and Military Affairs, or DEMA, says unless something unexpected happens, the last shipping container along the border should be removed by the end of the week. So far, DEMA says the project has cost taxpayers almost $140 million. That is expected to rise until the last containers are removed. Here is what's interesting about this. If it is a cost thing, and that's, again, I'm someone that likes to rein in costs, but it seems to me that that is what opposition always talks about, about any issue. Um, I've been talking quite a bit lately about the AEL, or the Aggregate Expenditure Limit, and it goes hand-in-hand with the expansion of the ESA program with tax dollars being used by citizens in any educational format they see fit, not just the public school system. And the number one criticism is how much money it's taking out of public schools and going to rich kids. So it's always the money argument is always the first thing that people make. Sometimes it's valid. Sometimes it's a crutch. In this case, I find it humorous because if the cost of putting up those uh, those uh, containers was abuse and, and horrible, why are you spending money to take them down? Well, because the White House said to. Oh, okay. I just look at that and I think you're spending more money complaining about the money that was spent. Now, I don't expect anybody to agree with me ever. 
But I look at things and try to be practical. The people of Yuma said that it was effective. Now, nobody thought it was going to cure the problem, but it was effective in slowing things down. You've got Mark Daniels of Cochise County talking about what he fights, that how two years ago, two years ago, Cochise County was one of the safest border counties in the entire nation. And now they have got all kinds of crime going on. Matter of fact, here's him talking about that uptick in crime specifically. Border-related crimes are at an all-time high. Death, murder investigations, aggravated acts against my citizens, fair to yields, search and rescue, plus recoveries, and yes, assaults against law enforcement officials. My deputies have been placed in life-threatening scenarios as a car show no regard for my citizens and those that wear a badge. Agents, troopers, deputies, and officers are addressing dangerous scenarios and criminals as a direct result of an open border being exploited by the criminal cartels for violence, fear, and greed. Why are, why are we not listening more to people like this? If he is the expert, he is the law enforcement, the chief law enforcement official in that county. You know, here in Maricopa County, there are many police agencies and many police chiefs. But because of the elections, the chief law enforcement officer of Maricopa County is Sheriff Paul Penzo. The sheriff being the duly elected sheriff of the county and the way that it's structured. Now, they, they don't all answer to him, but he is considered to be the top law enforcement officer in the county, just like Sheriff Daniels down in Cochise County. Why in the world, when we hear these things, just because you don't like what you're hearing, why aren't you taking him at his his word. Why aren't you listening to what he's saying needs to be done? He's the boots on the ground in this county. He's not done talking about crime. Here's another side of this. In calendar year 2022, 1,578 suspects were booked in my jail for border-related crimes. Only 78 were foreign-born. In 2021, over 5 million dosages of fentanyl were seized on the Arizona border. In 2022, over 20 million dosages were seized. In 2022, over 12,000 pounds of fentanyl were seized on the southwest border. 20, let me say 20 million doses or something like that. How many, how many doses of fentanyl? He talks about the cartels. Running amok in his county. Yeah, by allowing our border security mission and immigration laws to be discretionary, these criminal cartels continue to be the true winners. Their exploitation of mankind is simply modern-day slavery. Allowing thousands of pounds of illicit drugs into our country and conti- that continue to erode core values of families, schools, and subsequently killing an average of an average of 300 Americans every day is unacceptable at any level. Experiencing migrant deaths without a reasonable process why members of U- U.S. Congress and this administration intentionally avoid Reality is gross negligence. So when you hear the political conversation, when the vice president, when Vice President Harris comes to Arizona, but she doesn't go to the border and she makes some kind of a half-handed comment about how I'm going to go, but not today and, you know, not right now. And the and when asked point blank if the border is secure, she gives some long-winded answer. The border is secure as is, uh, in as much as what she said, in as much as it remains a top priority and this word salad comes spilling out. They haven't done anything about security. The border, and then the opposition says, "Well, it's never been secured. No president has fixed this." You just heard the sheriff say, "It's never been worse." This is what's frustrating to the average American. It isn't about xenophobia. It isn't about race. This is about the law, and this is about having a system of immigration that works for everybody. Who believes this is working? The answer is no one. It's political cover. To say otherwise, 
What we're going to do in a moment is kind of talk about that political cover. Uh, what is advocacy journalism? And that's a, that is a thing, advocacy journalism. And how does it um, differ from journalism? We'll talk about it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Thanks so much. Appreciate you being here. Here is a phrase I was not familiar with, but there is a phrase called advocacy journalism. Now, there is a and I've I've said for a long time on this show over and over again, out of respect for the people that I work with that are truly journalists. And there are many of them I work with that are brilliant at what they do. Um, You can go over to KTAR.com and see their work or you can hear them during our newscasts. These are journalists. These are people that do a different job than I do. And I've always said I'm not a journalist. What I do is I give my opinion. I comment on the news. I'm not someone that delivers the news. I comment on my opinions on the news. We have two different jobs and I respect everything they do. I couldn't do what they do. And we, I, I, and I'm not just saying this because I work here. We have some of the best in the business that do it, but here is something different. There is a movement in journalism schools to get rid of the principles of objectivity in journalism. Advocacy journalism is the new touchstone in media, even as polls show that trust in media is plummeting. Um, There is a former executive editor with The Washington Post and a former CBS News president. Uh, They said they've released the results of an interview of over 75 media leaders and concluded that objectivity is now considered reactionary and even harmful. We've been discussing the rise of advocacy journalism and the rejection of objectivity in journalism schools. So maybe I am a journalist. I'm just an advocacy journalist. Maybe that's what I am because you get my opinion on this show. That's what you get. You don't always agree with it. A lot of times you don't. I may make you laugh. I might make you angry. I may make you agree with me, but you're getting my opinion on what I see. That's advocacy journalism. Now, here's my problem with this because I've got a stack of examples. My problem with this is there's a difference between listening to my opinion on things, whether you agree or disagree, or listening to our newscasts to get information and news. There is a difference. And when people come for news, they don't want – they will form their own opinion. And it's dangerous because the press has ver- has so many protections afforded to them, and they should. I'm not advocating that that be removed. The press must always be protected. In this country, what helps keep us the free that freedoms that we have, where they're kept, because we have journalists who have the ability to question the government, to criticize the government, to write about the government without any fear of repercussion. That's the way it's supposed to work. But what happens, what happens when instead of the state controlling the media, because when you look at China and you look at some of the other countries, the communist countries where, you know, you look at the information that the Russian people get from the Russian government, the Chinese people, how they control the information that's given to their people, uh, the advent of Twitter and social media that had the Arab Spring rise up because the people in these countries like Iran and others are no longer only getting information that's desired by the government. They're hearing what the world is saying. And that is a great thing. But when what happens 
the, when the other way around happens. What happens when journalists choose sides? You've got MSNBC on one side. You've got Fox News on the other side. CNN, wherever they used to be, they're not anymore. And they're trying to right the ship and their ratings have gone through the floor and never been lower. But is it dangerous? And I don't mean dangerous for violence. I mean, just dangerous in general. Here's a couple of headlines. Um, The liberal Columbia Journalism Review offers a scathing indictment of the New York Times and the Russiagate coverage that they were wrong and they were intentionally wrong. Um, Questioned on the Biden documents, press secretary has only one answer. The press secretary for the White House is the mouthpiece for the White House. Journalists are supposed to ferret out the truth and question them on things. Um, National Archives wasn't allowed to reveal Biden classified discovery. How about this? Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden finally admits infamous laptop is his and he pleads for a criminal probe. Um, Hunter Biden's lawyer's newly aggressive strategy targets his critics. Laptop emails suggest Hunter Biden read newspapers, not classified documents. Hunter Biden uh, paid assistant thousands of, off the books for filthy sex chats and texts show. So all of this was covered up before the election. And there were many people that said they would have voted differently had they known that the laptop was real and not Russian disinformation or a hoax. How much of that is laid at the feet of journalists? How much of that is, uh, and I'll give you another example going back further. If you remember the Bill Clinton story in Monica Lewinsky about you know what was going on in the White House with an intern and, and all this stuff that was going, it was, it was a big scandal in that administration. You know that Most of the major news organizations, especially the national news organizations, had that story and they were holding on to it. They didn't want they did not want to be the organization that broke the story. So who broke the story? Matt Drudge and the Drudge Report broke that story. And then once the story was verified that it was out there, all the news organizations had their stories written. They just put them up. So if you're going to, and I believe they should, question one party of our government, then you should question all parties in our government, all sides of the government. When you, when there are major stories that the American people have a right to know, we count on the real journalists of this world, which is why, again, I talk about how much respect I have for the people in this building that I work with that are journalists. These are people that realize this is information that is pertinent to people, whether I like it or I don't like it, whether I agree with it or I disagree with it, whether it is good for or bad for a political party or a politician that I admire, it doesn't matter. This is a story that needs to be told because it's information the people in Arizona need to see. That's journalism. You give them the information, let them decide if they're angry or happy or whatever it is. When there are stories that you know are major stories that are going to be important to people and you hide them, you don't run them. When people knew about the documents, and I'm not saying this was necessarily journalists, but when the investigation 
into President Biden for documents after what they did to Donald Trump and the FBI and all of this, what a horrible thing it is. And you saw all the cable news networks talk about what a disaster and how dangerous for national security. And they interviewed the president about it to find out that before the midterm elections, they found classified documents at the president's house and no one in journalism knew it or reported it until January. Advocacy journalism. It's not about being right. It's not about, and by that I mean correct. It's not about being correct. It's not about giving information that is important to people and letting them to decide what to do with, letting them decide what to do with the information. It's about protecting one side and exposing the other. Now, a lot of people do that in the opinion business. If you're an editorial board or you're an editorial writer or, or someone like me that is giving an opinion, it's different than when people call themselves journalists. They hide behind that title and act as if they're impartial and unbiased when there's a whole thing now on advocacy journalism saying that not only should you not be a real journalist, it's dangerous if you are. It's out there and it's interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing exactly how far it goes. Coming up in a moment, uh, the House Education Committee passes the bill in out of the committee about AEL and getting it um, overridden. We'll talk about that coming up in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Happy Thursday. Um, the legislature takes a step toward lifting the school spending limit. Um, so here's just a little bit of it. Mary Jo Pitzel over at the Arizona Republic. Uh, with the clock ticking down to a March 5th deadline, lawmakers have taken the first step toward allowing Arizona school districts to spend the money they were given in the state budget and avoid budget cuts. The vote in the House Education Committee on Tuesday sets in motion efforts to raise the spending limit for schools this year. Um, and I believe this, and I've heard from a few people affirmatively, although I have and verified it myself, people have asked, well, why wouldn't they just override this or get rid of it? But I believe that since it was passed by a ballot initiative, it's got, it has to be another ballot initiative, a vote of the people that overrides it permanently or gets rid of it. So that would take either the legislature itself putting it on the ballot or citizens going out and getting signatures to get it on the ballot so the voters in Arizona could vote to override it or get rid of it permanently. It's another one of the reasons, and I promise you I won't go down this rant again. I've done it so many times that I despise our propositional form of government in Arizona. I hate it. Um, it's raw democracy. It's not what the founding fathers wanted. It's lazy, and these are the kinds of unintended consequences that can happen years later. I've talked about uh, marijuana being legalized and when it went to be medical marijuana first, and I will say this very honestly. I've never smoked marijuana in my life. I've never done any drugs. But I have a lot of friends that did a lot of drugs. And so I'm not – A, I'm not um, a prude. And B, I don't – I really don't care what you do. This is not about whether it's good or bad. I'm making an observation. Um, we were told that when the med- when the medical marijuana proposition was passed, we were told, hey, this is not going to be like California. This is not going to be a small number of doctors that are just handing out these authorization forms to get medical marijuana to a bunch of college kids because they have chronic pain or what anxiety or whatever else. 
that it's going to be you're going to have to have a two year relationship with your doctor before you can even get this prescription or whatever you want to call it recommendation. And so it's not going to be just a bunch of small groups of doctors making a ton of money doing this. And as soon as this piece of legislation passed, they changed it. Now, you say, well, how did they change it? Well, the way it works with the Arizona Constitution is once something is passed, you can make it easier. You can't make it harder. So right away, it was a small pool of doctors <clears throat> writing the, uh, the, the prescriptions, and it wasn't everybody, but it was then a small group of doctors, and all the kids playing hacky sack wearing Bob Marley t-shirts at ASU were the ones getting the medical marijuana cards. So then we legalized it. Well, there's questions about oversight and labeling and potency. Well, you can't force that on them. The law is the law the way it's written. And so I'm not a fan of doing something that ties the hands of the legislature. That doesn't mean the legislature does things right all the time. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't even mean they're good sometimes. But we have a representative republic. We elect people to go to the legislature to um, to vet out a bill and a law to find, you know, to consider the unintended consequences. And then if something isn't working properly, what they go in and do is they change it. And they are able to fix it. And that's not what's happening here. So with the ESA expansion, I know we started out with AELs, but with ESA expansions, if that had passed by a ballot initiative, then there would have been no changing it. Well, now that we have the ESA expansion passed by the legislature, it can be changed. And if there are tweaks that are needed in it, if there are places where it's inefficient, if there are places where it's being abused, then it can be fixed a lot more easy than a two-thirds majority of both the House and the Senate. And this AEL conversation, I will tell you that when I had Jake Hoffman, who was the head of the Freedom Caucus in here, he made excellent points about why they want negotiation on certain things before they pass the AEL. And I had this conversation. It's so good. I've been arguing with people and arguing with people about this on social media. They keep saying that, we need to get rid of the ESAs. One of the things I keep hearing is because the voters voted down propositions twice on ESAs. The voters didn't want it, so the legislature shouldn't be able to pass it. Since the, it was the vote of the people, you should do the will of the people. And I pointed out to them, you go back to 1980 and the AEL, the aggregate expenditure limit, was also passed by the voters in Arizona. The voters spoke then. So if we are going to adhere to the will of the people and the vote, you've got to acquiesce to this AEL and leave it alone. Well, that's not true. That was 1980. That was so long ago. A lot of those people are dead. 1992. In 1992, not quite 1980, but a long time ago, the state of Arizona by ballot initiative passed the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. What would you say if some racist fool said we need to get rid of that holiday because that thing was voted on so long ago, people's minds have changed? You'd say, how, what does it matter how long ago the vote was? You know, you had people up in arms because Roe v. Wade was sent back to the states. That decision happened in the 1970s. So the age of the vote doesn't matter. It's whether it's, it is something that you think is still viable or not. And so why don't we argue about these things for what they are instead of what you want to, how you want to force them out and justify your anger? This AEL needs to be overridden. I, and that's my opinion.
But when you have people that are looking at the education system in Arizona and they are seeing how mismanaged, flawed, and how much it's failing, they say we want to make drastic changes that will fix it. And since nobody wants to move on fixing it, if you want this AEL overridden, you're going to sit down at the table and help us fix it. I don't know if they're being unreasonable. They might be on to something. Making people discuss it. We'll see. I'm anxious to see how this all plays out. Coming up just after 10 o'clock, what does the Fed rate increase mean to you? You're going to hear the head of the Fed. He is going to tell you why they did it. Jerome Powell talks about the rate hike, why the rate hike happened, what it means to the American people, and what might happen next. We'll do it next.